Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, we have a fantastic episode with Vitalik. What do we walk through with Vitalik today? Yeah, a number of different topics. We just we wanted to get Vitalik on the podcast, on the YouTube, to go through some of the current events in Ethereum as he is digesting them, as we are digesting them, and also go through some of the blog posts that he has written on his website, vitalik.ca. Uh, and so we begin talking about this conversation of the Beacon Chain launch, what that was like, what that felt like, the just the emotional response from Vitalik. But then we go into his article, Why Proof of Stake, which he wrote in November 20- 2020, a really important article to understand the arguments behind why proof of stake is so valuable, why it's uniquely compelling, and why its security assumptions seem to be really, really strong. And that is something that we are going to see being tested in 2021. And then we finish off with a conversation of convex and concave dispositions, which Vitalik characterizes people as either being concave or convex. And we'll get into what that means in the podcast. But he, um, and I think listening to all of these different topics. It's a, it's a diverse podcast with a number of different topics, but framing it in a convex versus concave uh, disposition, I think adds an extra flavor or extra layer to really appreciate as to how people will come to argue about why proof of stake versus proof of work or why Bitcoin versus Ethereum, why, you know, why expressivity at the base layer via or, or trying to keep the base layer extremely, extremely concise. Um, so it's a wide range of conversation, but there's still a through line all the way through. Yeah, I feel like that through line is is like culture, right? It's like philosophy. The these two communities, Bitcoin and um, Ethereum, had different schools of thought, different philosophies, and that's why they have made the decisions that they've made. And that comes across, of course, with the launch of the Beacon Chain, and then also this conversation of why proof of stake is better than proof of work. So it's a super interesting conversation. We we almost start with like um, the the manifestation of the, the value system in the culture and then work backward to, to the philosophy and, and kind of the, the question of why. Vitalik is always a pleasure to have on. He is like a super deep and insightful thinker. And he's he's not just technical, but he's almost like a, an anthropologist with <laughs> some of the ways he he thinks about the, the human and social element uh, of these crypto systems. And I think that's what makes all of this unique. One note, of course, we did release these episodes on YouTube um, in November and into December, but this is the first time we are publishing them all in one place on the podcast for your viewing pleasure. So, and of course, guys, you can always watch the full video interview on our YouTube. That's youtube.com slash C slash bankless, where you will find that all right, guys, we're going to get into the interview with Vitalik Buterin. But first, we're going to take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got back into crypto back in 2017, and it has been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens like Wi-Fi, Aave, Uni, and also they are one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Having both the option of logging into the Gemini.com website or instead opening the Gemini mobile app has allowed me to be able to access any and all exchange and on or off ramp services that I've needed to on a moment's notice. 
With instant deposits and fast withdrawals, I'm able to make my money do the things I want it to when I want it to. You can buy crypto safely and securely on Gemini with the peace of mind of knowing that your investments are insured and protected with industry-leading cybersecurity. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after signup, you'll be gifted a free $15 bonus. Check them out, gemini.com slash go bankless. Synthetix is Ethereum's decentralized derivatives liquidity protocol. What does that mean? Synthetix is a platform for creating and trading synthetic assets, which are assets that are priced via an oracle rather than bids or asks. Traders can use the Quenta exchange, which hosts and trades all of the synthetic assets created by Synthetix. Traders on Quenta can trade synthetic tokens like SBTC, SOIL, or SDFI. Because Quenta is powered by synthetics, traders experience zero slippage on their trades. No, I didn't mean low slippage, I meant no slippage, because that is the power of the synthetics platform. No slippage on your trades. You can also easily short assets with iSynths, which are synthetic assets that move inversely to their target asset. Synthetics isn't just for traders, developers can build on synthetics to access the infinite liquidity offered by synthetic assets, or investors can stake collateral to the protocol and earn fees that the protocol collects. If you're a trader and you're looking for a trading platform not found in the legacy world, check out quenta.io. If you're a developer or you just want to earn yield on your collateral, go to www.synthetics.io where you can stake your SNX or ETH and earn fees from Synthetics. Bankless Nation, we are pleased to bring you Vitalik Buterin again in front of the nation. We are talking about a few things that are top of mind. Vitalik, great to have you. How are you doing? Thank you very much, uh, David and Ryan. It's um, great. It's uh, great to be on Bankless again. It is fun. And I feel like this is a really good moment to be on Bankless. The first thing we want to talk about with you actually is this pretty momentous, maybe monumental in the history of Ethereum achievement, which is we hit the number 524,288 ETH now deposited in the staking contract. How does that feel? It definitely feels great. Um, like, and I think like for a, a long time, the first few weeks, uh, and we were definitely uh, a bit worried because I know the, the deposits were coming in slowly at the beginning. And it seemed like, oh, you know, with only four days left, we only had 20% and, um, you know, what the heck is going on here? Uh, and I mean, we even saw, right, that and there were a lot of people who were starting to get worried, like and on an, our GitHub thread, and uh, I saw Eric opened up um, that GitHub issue, basically suggesting, you know, hey, just in case uh, there's never mm-hmm. enough deposits, so let's set a maximum date, and there was a bunch of arguments around that. Um, but, um, you know, no, the uh, Ethereum community came in and the Ethereum community delivered. And just like uh, within the last 24 hours, we ended up having more deposits than we had in the uh, entire period before that. Like, it's, it definitely feels a little bit surprising, though in retrospect, it, it should not be too surprising, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one uh, kind of events that happened in the past that this reminds me of is um, if you were here during uh, the original Ether sale back in 2014, um, if, 
if uh, you remember that uh, whole event, uh, it, was, it was this uh, kind of six week long sale, but then the first two weeks were this uh, most important period because that was the period during which you could get the most favorable price for your ETH. Uh, and there was like some amount, amount of deposits on the first day, less on the second day. And then it seemed like it was going really slowly and uh, kind of almost petering out at a couple of million dollars. And then just suddenly in the last couple of days, everyone just like whooshed in and uh, right. pushed the whole thing up to close to $18 million. Uh, so, and it, like the curve feels uh, kind of very similar to that. Um, and I, I, I guess to some extent you should expect that because, well, why would someone uh, participate earlier if they can just wait until the end? Um, and, but you know, just seeing that kind of spike you just come first slowly and then all at once is definitely amazing. And, and it, it's definitely a great testament to the uh, Ethereum community's uh, level of confidence. And that, that first time in, in Ethereum itself and then this, this uh, second time in the, the uh, proof of stake and sharding uh, st uh, stuff that we've uh, spent so many years working on. So Vitalik, what does this tell you uh, about the Ethereum community? Like as a result of this, because we like, we hit the 524,000 ETH, but then we just blew past it by 200,000 more ETH. Like what does this, if this is a litmus test for the community, what is it telling you? What, like, what are your big takeaways about the Ethereum community as a result of this event? I, I think like, first of all, there's, definitely wide community buy-in and confidence in ETH2 in general. Uh, and that's something that I think I definitely believed the whole time, but it's uh, definitely good to have uh, just such a clear sign of it. Um, you know, $300 million worth of uh, people just locking up their ETH, uh, potentially never to see it again unless the thing, um, you know, either delivers or we find, or, or we find some kind of further thing to do um, to do to make those uh, coins in the um, in in the deposits actually valuable again. So you know, in some sense, it's the ultimate bet on progress, and and I think like uh, a bet on progress is uh, to some extent what Ethereum is about. I feel like it happened in the perfect way, like in a very um, like climactic way, and really like fired the Ethereum community up when it actually happened in the way that it did. Like it, it's almost fitting, I would say, that it that we weren't sure we were going to cross the threshold until the last you know forty eight to to you know twenty four hours. But I, I'm curious about this number itself. Why was the number selected? What kind of drove that number to begin with? Was it fairly arbitrary that we have to have some amount of stake? And so, you know, why not this particular number? Or was there some sort of rhyme or reason behind it? I, I guess uh, like 524,000 was the, the kind of the power of two that seemed like a relatively minimum acceptable threshold for an amount of deposits that we could have to ensure that the chain would actually be safe with that amount. So like to give one example, it's the smallest power of two that uh, the Ethereum Foundation could not individually 51% attack. Uh, so that was, uh, or you know, the Ethereum Foundation has like slightly above, uh, uh, slightly above that, but you no, know, it would have to put everything in and even then it would only be, uh, only be around 50%. Um, so if we had less than just the number of actors that would have enough money to be able to, um, uh, take over the thing individually it would just kind of get higher and higher and so it actually would be like the, the chain would just not be that secure with a, a lower amount 
but on the other hand, like at this level, it's getting to the point where like there's really very few individual actors that actually have the ability to kind uh, of put in um, the funds to take over the chain. And aside from the, the foundation, there's also like obviously the major exchanges and maybe like consensus and a couple and uh, and I don't know how much they have and and uh, a couple of whales. And but and then if you go if you go kind of higher and we hope to go higher, then it uh, is going to get kind of out of, out of reach of even those kind of largest holders. But like realistically, we don't have to kind of get up uh, get up to those much higher levels immediately. Like this is still you know just the phase zero beacon chain. There's nothing uh, kind of completely relying on it, and so we start at a kind of immediate level of uh, safety and then kind of go up to the higher level over time as people would naturally become more confident in the system. So this uh, process, this getting to that number and exceeding the threshold of ETH, that sort of initiates the, the rocket launch sequence, right? But yes. um, the, the chain is not yet launched. That will happen mm -hmm. December 1st, 12, Correct. 12, 12 o'clock UTC time. Um, so what what kind of happens next? What's the next milestone in the beacon chain launch and in staking now that we've filled up the, the deposit contract to its minimum threshold? Mm -hmm. So the next milestone is obviously the thing that's happening in five and a half days after I'm saying this, um, so December <laughs> 1st, uh, the, the launch itself. Um, you know, just it's, you know, we've done lots of test debts, but this is still larger than any test debt. It's a different set of stakeholders than any test debt. So just making sure that all goes smoothly. Uh, then after that, uh, we would hope the uh, proof of stake chain just runs smoothly for some amount of time. And at some point we want to just uh, start getting onto the task of uh, kind of upgrading it and uh, bringing on all the full functionality that we want ETH2 to have. Uh, so. The big ticket items are, one is sharding, uh, the second is uh, of the merge, uh, so bringing uh, ETH1 into uh, the ETH2 system, removing the proof of work chain and kind of properly folding the, uh, the system back together. And then there's also some smaller things that we want to do. So like, for example, we want to add white client support uh, fairly quickly. So if you go into the uh, ETH2 specs uh, GitHub, there's already a, uh, PR that's uh, we've been working on for about a, a couple of weeks to add light client support. Uh, and then there is some just efficiency improvements and some possible kind of economic tweaks. Um, like one example of a, a, a type of economic tweak we might want to make is just a, making the chain more friendly to uh, people who, validators who stay online during an inactivity leak, but don't stay online perfectly. So like basically, if you have 90% of performance during an inactivity leak where the people who are completely online lose 40%, like you should not lose 4%, right? Really, you should lose much less than 4%. Because you really were doing the best that you can. Uh, so I have a proposal around fixing that, uh, just general efficiency improvements. Uh, so basically, the ETH2 chain is uh, just going to uh, kind of get into this, uh, this you know, progressing and upgrading uh, mode, and it's uh, uh, basically preparing for the po uh, the moment when uh, the existing Ethereum ecosystem can kind of properly and fully fold into it. Are you feeling a little bit, Vitalik? Because so this is like the the uh, launch sequence initiated, right? But but at some level, we're all kind of standing close to the launch pad 
watching the you know the SpaceX rocket and it and it hasn't quite launched yet and that of course is maybe the the most nerve-wracking part right so are you is there any element of like you being nervous about December 1st or I mean what what could happen December 1st uh hmm. could could we have a, a a failed launch could there be some issue uh I mean issues are always possible right so this is I think why uh, we should hold off the full celebration until yes. it gets <laughs> yes. off the ground. Um, but like, you know, like we've seen now uh, what we've had with different test nets. Um, some of them launched perfectly. Some of them had issues. Uh, it, even the ones that had issues, they definitely all uh, managed to fix themselves within uh, either a couple of hours or a day or so. Um, I expect uh, that in this time, it, there, there's definitely more participants and, uh, and potentially less exp uh, less experienced participants, though also maybe more experienced participants because it's like the people who participated in the test nets are also going to be in the main net and it's not going to be a first time for the, for them anymore. Um, we're not. We're, I don't think we're going to see the thing that we saw in some of the test nets where forty percent of people just never showed up. Uh, because um, you know, this time we actually have a, a profit motive. Um, right. I yeah, uh, there's just always the possibility of random technical risk, I suppose. Um, but and you know, we've done lots of testing at this point, and uh, uh, the quality of the test sets has definitely just gone up and up over time. Um, but uh, you know, fingers crossed, and uh, you know, we've it's it, it hasn't happened until what's happened. Uh, so we're definitely hoping and eagerly uh, awaiting everything going well. So Vitalik, the ETH2 research team recently did a, uh, a Reddit AMA that I thought was uh, really fantastic. And there's one question I recall in there. I think somebody asked you the question about maybe, um, you know, ETH issuance or something. Um, I forget the context for the question. You had this really, uh, I thought, reflective reply where you talked about Ethereum being, you know, while while ETH2 is launching, it's also a um, a, t a technology and a network that is is somewhat in motion, right? There are going to be a, a large set of improvements over the the next two years, right? It's not necessarily going to be like instant scalability is here and both chains merge. It's it's going to still be a process, but at the end of that time. Um, like the ETH2 chain will be in a much better place. I was wondering if you could, I'm not presenting it the way, the way you did, the way you answered that question, but I'm wondering if that jogs your memory and you could mm -hmm. talk about um, maybe that answer to, to the question like, what's the future for issuance? What's the future for stability of ETH2? Where are we going to be on the other side when all of this stuff is done? And why should we hang with Ethereum? Yeah, no, I, 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 I definitely think like, I, I made that comment for a reason, uh, and, and I think there's an important uh, kind of insight to uh, keep in mind there. Uh, so, like, there's a lot of uh, people uh, who have been recently commenting about how, oh, you know, like, is, is ETH doesn't have a finalized issuance schedule, or, oh, you know, you can't calculate what the current total supply is, or, oh, what is the max supply, and, oh, or you're, now, you're, now you're changing things. and, and there's definitely in some extent to which like those uh, queries are coming more from the Bitcoin community than the uh, Ethereum community itself. And so, you know, we should definitely kind of not uh, 
I guess, overrate the extent to which we uh, care, like, really feel the need to kind of respond and satisfy all of those requests. Um, but, you know, like, the thing that we, I think we need to just uh, keep in mind is that just uh, kind of being intellectually honest about the state of Ethereum, like, if you need a system which uh, it, um, satisfies the property that it will stay the same as uh, as it is today and it has existing properties that it's um, that it's going to preserve then ethereum as it exists in 2020 is just as a matter of fact not the system for you for at least the next one to one and a half years right there's just a reality that there has been this massive eth 2.0 transition that's been planned pretty much almost since the project's launch and now it's finally happening and then at the same time, there are these massive transitions in economics. So, so EIP-1559 is a big one. And also just uh, um, activity moving from layer one to uh, the layer twos uh, is uh, another big one. And these things are going to fundamentally change how a lot of uh, economic and technical properties of Ethereum work. Uh, and so like any property of the Ethereum blockchain today may well change in those one to one and a half years. And so if you're interested in long-term economic properties of the Ethereum ecosystem, like it matters less what are the properties of the system today and it matters more you know, what are the properties of the thing that's uh, gonna slowly being built up over the next one and a half years, right? Uh, like, like what even is the point of uh, being able to, you know, verify the current, like the current proof of work issuance uh, schedule, like perfectly. If uh, the the thing that we really should be verifying is the economic properties of the proof of stake schedule that are going to be, um, you know, guiding uh, Ethereum's uh, economics for the twenty years after uh, two thousand and twenty um, two, or you know, when, uh, whenever the merge ends up happening. Uh, so, I think like just explicitly understanding that yes, Ethereum at the moment is a system in flux. And yes, if you want something that's not a system in flux, then, you know, Bitcoin may be the thing for you. Ethereum Classic may be the thing for you, though. And Ethereum Classic itself is a kind of, I think, in flux as a matter of necessity because its immutability is being threatened by all these 51% attacks. Um, but so that's one example where, um, you know, in order to protect people's uh, kind of property rights, you actually have to do something other than standing still. Um, and so, so Vitalik, if this is successful, if we cross the bridge, if we make it for the other side, uh, to the other side, for, for those that kind of stick with the project, stick like the builders, who, who kind of stick with it, the community that that's, sticks with it. What's left for us on the other side? What do we get in terms of issuance, in terms of improvements, in terms of uh, s security enhancements? What's the reward there? I, I, th I think great things are on the other side. Uh, so number one is obviously proof of stake. Uh, so much more um, efficient, much more secure, much less tree killing uh, form of like, uh, uh, much less issuance demanding uh, form of consensus. Um, so, uh, you know, issuance is going to potentially go down by significant amount. The efficiency of the network will uh, go up by yeah, a lot. And, and Ethereum is basically going to become what I think the 2020s will expect a modern blockchain to be. Uh, so that's number one. Um, number two is uh, sharding. 
Um, so short and at the same time, the layer two ecosystem. So those things together are going to give us scalability in the tens of thousands of uh, transactions per second, which is a uh, hugely important uh, because ultimately, you know, we're looking to uh, create a platform that can achieve mainstream adoption, create a platform that actually can uh, provide uh, enough security and trust that guarantees to its users and actually scale that up to uh, millions and uh, potentially tens or hundred millions of users and not just like a very, um, a very small number, like a couple hundred thousand uh, uh, per day. And uh, just proof of stake and sharding are the things that needs to be done to make that happen. Yeah, so that's number two. Uh, number three is um, that uh, just better protocol economics. Uh, so EIP 5059 is the really big thing. Um, I think the more you use Ethereum, the more you realize that like just gas estimation is such a stupid and archaic concept. <laughs> like, I really think um, that uh, if all goes well in five years time, like blockchains that rely on this first price auction model is just going to be looked at like caveman economics. Uh, so uh, him, uh, I'm, 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 uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. And it seems like the model is already working well and increasingly being validated in Filecoin. Um, it's uh, increasingly working well on the testnet. Uh, so really looking forward to that uh, uh, hitting the mainnet. I think that could be one of the big stories of uh, 2021. Um, also uh, just general efficiencies within the Ethereum system. Uh, so replacing the hex tree with binary trees, uh, allowing stateless clients, um, which should make it much more efficient to process and uh, to sync the chain. Um, but uh, much more, uh, if, uh, some of virtual machine improvements uh, that would allow us to just not need any more pre-compiles and have uh, to be able to have all the advanced cryptography that we want inside of uh, uh, Ethereum. Uh, so basically just everything that you could want if you're, you know, building some like privacy preserving application or uh, some kind of more complicated smart contract system or some Z or some roll up for scalability. Uh, you know the tools actually are going to be there, and you'll have, and you're not going to have to use uh, kind of clever tricks to anywhere this anywhere close to the same extent as you do now. Um, also, light client support. Uh, so ETH two, we're make, taking a go at making it explicitly much more light client friendly, uh, and so um, you know hopefully break the dependence on Infura and uh, kind of actually uh, have. A, you know, make it so that people's wallets actually can be like clients. Uh, so, and Vitalik, do we get to that place? Not fixed issuance, obviously, like the Bitcoin model. But do we get to ever get to a place where we have more predictable issuance on the other on the other side? What does that look like? Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, realistically, we'll want to wait around. Um, you know one or two years after it probably even like the clock is starts ticking next week. Uh, so just after phase zero and just verifying that the current economic structure of proof of stake is sustainable. Um, verifying that that economic structure can survive the addition of sharding, the addition of the ETH1 chain, uh, verifying that EIP 1559 is working as expected. And then once all of those pieces are in place, um, then I think people are going to just have a much more clear and visceral understanding of, you know, this is how high um, proof of stake issuance is. This is how high the AP 59 burn is. The, this is the kind of historical variance of those two parameters. And so um, like 
the uh, issuance in general kind of change of the total supply level is going to look, I think, much more predictable a couple of years from now. And I think people are going to be very happy with the results. Last thing for you on this, Vitalik, then we'll move, move on to something that is equally exciting in a way. Um, if somebody is just built on the ETH1 chain right now, has all of their ETH on the ETH1 chain, um, do they have to worry about any of the stuff that like we were just talking about or does this merge somehow in the future? Good question. Uh, the answer is they absolutely do not. Uh, so one of the big compromises that we made for kind of practicality is that while Ethereum's consensus uh, layer and scalability and all of these things are getting massive uh, kind of revamps from the ground up. Ethereum's execution layer is actually remaining remarkably constant throughout the transition. Uh, so transactions that were valid before will be valid after. Uh, smart contracts that executed in one way before will execute the same way after. Uh, basically all applications, contracts, ETH, everything will just be kind of migrated from the ETH1 side to the ETH2 side automatically, right? And so you as a user or as an application developer basically do not need to worry. I mean, there are a couple of corner cases, like for example, if you relied on block hashes for randomness before, then in proof of stake block hashes stop being secure randomness. And so instead you would have to use like the Randau output as randomness. But you no, know, like these are um, block times are gonna work slightly differently, but you no, know, these are generally like issues that only affect a very tiny portion of users. So for basically like the fast, mass and fast majority of the uh, of the user base I think will experience sign of close to no change from a, an application perspective so Vitalik the conversation about proof of work versus proof of stake was really really big from what I can remember in, in 2017 and in 2018 or it was probably even bigger before that but I came into the world of crypto in 2017 uh, and I actually think it's really valuable that people understand this debate and why and and understand the merits of proof of work and also understand the merits of proof of stake in order to understand like why is ethereum so committed to proof of stake like why do we want this and so you wrote this article on your blog vitalik.ca everyone should check it out called why proof of stake um and we kind of want to go through some of these points so we can help uh, help the bankless nation like kind of come to understand the the terms that, that you use here and the the arguments of why proof of stake is inherently a, a, the right, I'm not going to say superior, but the right uh, consensus mechanism for Ethereum, right? Because many Bitcoiners will still say to this day that proof of work is the one true consensus mechanism. Um, so let's go through some of, the, uh, some of the points that you that you wrote here. Proof of stake offers more security for the same cost. Like what does that mean and how does staking offer that? Mm -hmm. uh, so the basic uh, idea here is that if you try to quantify security, so the easiest way to quantify security is just how many dollars do you need to spend to break the thing, um, then if you look at the ratio of security to cost, where cost just means like how many rewards you have to um, you have to push out to the participants, then the ratio of the security level to the to the um, amount you pay for the security just is much more favorable on the proof of stake side than it is for any version of proof of work. Uh, and I think the way that you can look at this, right, is that if you look at just first of all, start off with a comparison between GPU-based proof of work and ASIC-based proof of work. Uh, so this is a comparison that I mean, even Bitcoin people make all the time, right, when they defend why their, uh, their ASIC-based proof of work is better than the ASIC-resistant algorithms. It's basically that in the GPU case, 
the cost of mining is only operating costs and there's basically no capital costs, right? Because like you can rent GPUs, um, if you buy a GPU, you can always sell it after, even if the blockchain disappears, GPUs continue to be useful. And so if you want to attack a GPU-based chain, all you have to do is just rent some GPUs for six hours or what, however long you want to do an attack. And so the cost of an attack is basically gonna be just exactly the same as the cost of the rewards during the time period that you're attacking. And, and if you as an attacker receive block rewards, then the cost of the attack even drops to zero or it becomes profitable all by itself, right? So for GPUs, like while GPU proof of work mining has a big advantage in terms of being decentralized, from a security perspective, it actually is quite weak. And we've seen this, right? As I mentioned, in Ethereum Classic has been getting a lot of 51% attacks recently. Mm -hmm. Now, if we look at ASIC-based proof of work, ASIC-based proof of work is considerably more secure because ASIC-based proof of work has not only ongoing costs, but also capital costs, right? And an analysis I did a few years ago suggests that it's about one third ongoing costs and about two thirds capital costs. Um, maybe that ratio changes over time. I actually have no idea which direction it's gonna change into, but like that's roughly what it is approximately, right? And if you, then if you uh, kind of make some assumptions about how long an ASIC lasts, you can actually kind of reverse engineer what the capital costs are uh, kind of from the amount of money that you're paying for rewards, right? So the idea basically is that if your, pay, your chain is paying $1 a day in rewards, uh, then out of that $1, one third will be operating costs, two thirds will be capital costs. And you can think of the two thirds as capital costs as being a kind of amortized over the entire period of time uh, during which that miner is mining, right? And mm -hmm. so if you assume that an ASIC lasts about two years, uh, I think now it's a little bit more, uh, it's a little bit more than two years, um, but you know, Moore's law, in increasing efficiency, wear and tear, all of these things. Uh, so at the two year level, right, all you have to do is you basically take the amount per day that they're spending on the ASIC and then multiply that by the number of days in two years. And that's the cost of the ASIC, right? And right. so if your model of an attack is that an attacker just has to buy up as many ASICs as the legitimate network, then you can use this to kind of get an estimate for the cost of the ASICs needed to attack the network. And so here you, know, you get about $486. And so that's the cost of breaking proof of work if you have ASICs, right? So already much better than GPUs, but ASICs have a cost of, of uh, centralization. So now if we go to proof of stake. So proof Before of stake, we go to proof of stake, can I get you to comment on sure. Ethereum 1? Would you, if, if Ethereum 1, if that was the chain that would just carry on into the, into the future forever, would you have hmm. been in favor of it being GPU based or would you have been uh, interested in making an ASIC version of Ethereum? So at the beginning, I was definitely much more pro GPUs, um, but I think uh, uh, more recently uh, I've, uh, well, I, it's not so much that I've become more pro ASIC, it's that I've become less pro GPU. And, and so it's just like, it just feels like a kind of a, a tragic choice between two differently bad options, to be honest. Um, okay. But GPUs you know, did have this nice property in the early days that it was a much more um, egalitarian, decentralized way correct. to distribute the tokens, which arguably that's kind of what Ethereum was looking for in right. you know, like the first part of its life. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's very important. And I think Ethereum is definitely better as a result of uh, having that GPU mining for the, the first few years of its existence. 
As somebody who came into Ethereum because it was able to be GPU mined, I have to say thank you for making that choice. <laughs> but not as secure compared to ASICs is the point, right. at least yeah, from an right. economic security perspective. Yeah. And okay, the so thing to keep in mind, right, is that the longer we, like, I, I think the chain even uh, ha manages to be um, a GPU mined up until this day only because people realize that proof of stake is coming, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you just like basically the reason why there isn't much more work on building ASICs is that people realize that any ASICs that get built will only survive like a, a, either a year or potentially even a few months. Like potentially in response to the chain getting taken over by ASICs, we could even just rush the entire transition um, right. and uh, just like do the merge uh, in, the, in a couple of weeks, right? Like it, like doing that sort of thing would totally. Uh, be extremely disruptive to the Ethereum ecosystem, but you know, doing something extremely disruptive in response to an already extremely disruptive attack is the sort of thing that would happen, right? And so, mm -hmm. like people, I think realize that it's just too risky to build ASICs because, like, there's just no guarantee that you're actually going to have enough of a period of time during which you're go you're going to be profitable, mm -hmm. and that's why the chain continues to be GPU friendly, right? And so. The fact that like this GPU friendliness has been possible to this day should not at all be taken as evidence that GPU friendliness is a stable equilibrium going into the long term. Right, makes sense. Um, Shall we get into proof of so, stake? Yeah, so proof of stake. Um, so basically the way that I view proof of stake is I view proof of stake as combining the efficiencies of uh, uh, or this uh, capital cost uh, property of ASICs, but really cranking that property up to the extreme um, and at the same time, having the uh, kind of open accessibility of uh, GPUs, right? Uh, so basically, proof of stake is almost entirely capital costs, right? The cost of like operating a node is fairly small. And, and the difference is, though, is that in the case of ASICs, the capital cost is only kind of amortized over the course of, um, you know, about two years. So it's about like 50% a year. But unlike ASICs, deposited coins do not depreciate. Deposited coins, you, know, you can deposit them, you can stake for a bit, and you can get them back. And so you actually don't even need that high of a rate of return to motivate people to stake. Um, so here I was actually, I think, understating the case, right? Because like, here I was saying, oh, you know, imagine a 15% rate of return is enough to motivate people to be willing to lock up their money and stake. But and. I think 15% is roughly the rate of return that we're going to see in this uh, initial phase of ETH2. Like I think with the current level of deposits, it's about 18%. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we're going to see more deposits. But I think in the long run, especially when it's possible to just deposit, um, stake for a bit, and then withdraw, we'll get your money back within a day. Like I fully expect that the rate of the, the rate of return will just drop to something closer to 10% or even 5%. And, and so, but even with 15% rate, uh, a 15% rate of return on capital, that basically means that, you know, one dollar per day of rewards is going to attract 6.667 worth of, of worth of uh, deposits, right? Mm -hmm. Or basically, like if you have a two, if you um, stick uh, $2,400 in as a deposit, then your annual return would be $2,400 multiplied by 15%, um, which would be around, um, you know close to 365 and mm -hmm. so $365 a year is equal to $1 a day, right? So right. if we assume 15% rate of return uh, per year, then every $1 of day in rewards is going to correspond to $2,433 of deposits. That's at current um, rates. 
if the rates drop to 5%, then this number obviously goes up to 7,500, right. right? Now, if we assume that um, only 90% of the costs are capital costs and there's still 10% that are operating costs, then you know, the 2433 goes down to about 2189. But basically, even still, right, we have five times more deposits that are paid for by the same rewards in proof of stake as compared to ASIC-driven proof of work. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and this is now in the long term, like I expect it to go up to something like 10,000. So it'll be 25 times stronger than uh, proof of work. So, so does the security, is, so is that summarized as the security of proof of stake comes from the fact that Ether, the asset, doesn't deprecate in the same way that ASIC a machine does. And so Ether gives Correct. you a year on year return where an ASIC gives you a year on year deprecation, devaluation of the unit, right? And so that's the fundamental Correct. component of where proof of stake gets its security from. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's definitely an excellent way of stating the point. Cool. All right, so where we've come so far is we have GPU uh, based proof of work, work, which Ethereum is on now. That means you can use a GPU card and like your yeah, NVIDIA like gaming machine to, to mine a little bit. Um, and that total cost of attack is um, like fairly cheap. Like it, you can attack that mm -hmm. fairly easily, lower economic security. And then Bitcoin has ASIC based proof of work, which is uh, a bit more expensive to attack. So higher economic security. And that well, economic security comes from the fact that the ASIC is only doing one job. That's only possible to do one job, which is mine Bitcoin. It's dedicated. Yes. So it's all sunk capital costs, sunk, basically. Yes. You are locked in. So, and now proof of stake, because it's like ultra sunk costs. That's the only thing you can really like kind of, you know, do with, do with it. It's almost like a tokenized ASIC mm -hmm. on, on steroids, if, if you will. That's even more efficient. And how would you quantify this? Is this like a, a 5x more efficient, like bank for the, bank for the security for the dollar? Or is yeah, it uh, so a 10x? Uh, like according to the kind of back on my back of the envelope numbers here, it's five X in the short term and up to 20 X in the long term. Wow. So I, I think of this, you know, David and I have, you know, often sort of analogized these sort of chains to nation states and almost this is like the security force. This is the, the defense. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's almost like you're upgrading your military from cavalry and horses mm -hmm. to like panzer tanks here. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, you, like trying to think like what, what, what's a good, uh, a, a good analogy? Like, okay, so here's a really fun and dumb analogy. So um, GPU based proof of work is you have to like basically hire soldiers out every, every, every day to patrol your borders uh, to make sure the enemy army doesn't get in and you have to keep on paying them. Basic based proof of work yeah. is um, the, great, the Great Wall of China. Um, mm -hmm. Then uh, proof of stake is imagine a great, um, a great wall of China that has the property that the way that this wall is constructed is that when people are not staying in their own houses, they just teleport the walls, their, the walls of their houses, and they make it part of the, uh, they make it part of the uh, Great Wall of China. So <laughs> whenever you're not in your house, whenever you're like going off on vacation, you just click a button and your house teleports to being part of the wall. 
and uh, you know the government pays you some small amount of money to do this and you're happy to collect the reward uh, and then as soon as you want to uh, move back into your house you just click a button again and the walls teleport back and they're part of your house again right <laughs> so basically it just like you don't even need to kind of mm -hmm. create these separate resources you're just kind of taking advantage of existing resources and you're moving moving them over to a different purpose when people uh, know that they don't need them for a long time so much more capital efficient so, so the idea is that the Great Wall, this version of the Great Wall of China would theoretically be a lot higher because of the incentive for everyone to allocate the walls of their house into the walls of the Great Wall of China in the moments that they are not inside their house using their house as a house. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the, the interesting thing, so is I think here, um, so you talked about this in the article, right? So we're talking about a five to 20x gain in proof of stake potentially. And the question is, what do we do with this efficiency gain as a social contract for Ethereum? Uh, can you talk about that? Because it seems like there are like, you know, maybe two options here of what to do with this drastically improved military, drastically improved Great Wall. Yes. Uh, so one of them is to keep the military budget the same, but have much higher security. And the other one is to have the same security, but cut the military budget down. Uh, and I guess the reason why I think we're taking the second approach is actually best to kind of even describe in the next section, right? Like I think we, like Ethereum has enough security today, especially if attacks become much easier to recover from. And we actually don't even need to have like, too much spending going into uh, keep uh, going into keeping the wall up um, because um, you know if it, it, it turns out that basically even even if someone successfully invades so like you can do this clever move <coughs> clever move where you just like hard fork and you and you delete their army uh, so <laughs> so so that I want to get into that so just to 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 link folks into to what you're talking about like so um, the way Ethereum right now, the way Bitcoin right now pays for their military is generally through block reward, through issuance, through supply, right? So, and Bitcoin's approach is to cut that military budget, at least military budget denominated in Bitcoin every four years, cut it in half every four years. So where the Bitcoin protocol government every four years, you know what, it's forced on you, we're going to slash your military like, like by, by four, right? Um, at least denominated in Bitcoin by two, by two, excuse me. Um, Ethereum's approach is basically to do something that's maybe more what the social contract is kind of called minimum necessary issuance or minimum viable issuance where it's like, Hey, like maybe we can drop this a whole lot more because we have a, a stronger defense system. And so that that issuance essentially is what goes to pay for the military and maybe that could be slashed maybe that could be cut right now it's a four four and a half percent or so and mm -hmm. we could go to something less than one percent mm -hmm. absolutely and uh, yeah Vitalik, one, uh, no, one so, of the uh, theories i've had about uh one of the reasons why proof of stake is is more more secure in the long term is that with that reduced issuance 
that reduction of issuance actually compounds as a benefit over time. And I want to, want to get your take on this because I don't know if this is real mm-hmm. or not. And th- th- this is the same, uh, same dynamic is present in EIP-1559. The more ether that's burned in EIP-1559, the more ether is unable to be leveraged in an attack against stakers, right? The, the mm-hmm. less ether we can make available to the secondary market, the less ether there's available for attackers to be able to grab and use that to attack the Ethereum network. Is that is that a real thing? So like the less ether that we issue, is that over time adding to security? That's definitely an interesting and a kind of novel way to think about it. And I guess, and generally, yes, like the less ether there is and, um, and even like the, the higher the price goes, so the, the harder it is for an attacker to buy enough to uh, successfully make an attack. And that's definitely one of the factors that uh, c- contributes to security. And if you have miners that are just constantly selling millions of coins every year, then you know it, some of those coins are going to end up in the, in the hands of people that might be interested in attacking it at some point. Mm-hmm. So let's go into one of the grand ways that uh, say somebody did somehow manage to get their hands on um, some, uh, enough ether to attack the chain. Uh, we actually have a way around this. Uh, and so uh, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the sections in this piece is, is titled, um, Attacks are much easier to recover from in proof of stake. Uh, maybe we can talk about like the af- after an attack happens, what paths to maintaining or you know, restoring security does Ethereum have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think in the GPU case, the only defense is basically just waiting and hoping the attacker goes away, which has worked so far, right? But like as soon as an attacker comes that's persistent, uh, you're basically screwed and you have to try to figure out something else. In an ASIC-based system, you do have one form of defense, which is you uh, just change the proof-of-work algorithm. And what that does is it basically kind of bricks like, all the ASICs. It renders them useless. But it breaks both the attacker's ASICs and the honest miner's ASICs, right? But if the attacker is willing to suffer that initial expense, then at that point, it just turns into a GPU mined coin up, up until, um, you know, after a couple of years where people build ASICs for the new algorithm again. And so it just turns into the, kind of the, into the first paragraph and the attacker can just continue the attack really cheaply for as long as they want. Hmm. And in fact, I would even argue that it's worse than this because if an attacker starts doing this and if the attacker commits to continuing to attack, then it actually takes away from the incentive to build ASICs for the new algorithm because anyone building the ASICs knows that if the attacker is going to continue, then potentially those ASICs could get bricked a second time. Um, so like basically the fact that bricking hurts both the attacker and honest miners actually like, really uh, makes the, yeah, the game theory behind all of this even worse. So in the proof of stake case, um, basically it's, uh, it gets much better, right? Because uh, like we have this concept of slashing, right? So if you contribute to breaking the chain, uh, you get slashed. And even if you contribute to breaking the chain as part of a 51% attack, you get slashed. Now there are attacks that are hard to detect and hard to slash for. So a big one is like a 51% coalition censoring everyone else. But you can get around this by using um, this wonderful trick that the Bitcoin people invented in 2017 called uh, the UASF, the the user-activated soft fork, right? Basically, just users coordinate on 
um, participating in a minority chain, and they just abandon the majority chain that's uh, censoring them. And actually, because of the way that the Casper FFG rules work, the attacker cannot legally uh, kind of move over to the minority chain without um, contradicting themselves and getting slashed. And so the attacker just gets leaked and uh, they lose about half their points, right? So basically, no matter how you attack the chain, it's going to be very expensive for the attacker, not very expensive for everyone who is not an attacker. And so the game is very asymmetric, right? Like every time the attacker attacks, they lose a huge amount of money. Um, mm -hmm. And potentially, like the the amount of coins that are burned as a result of an attack would e could even mean that an attack would cause the price of ETH to go up. <laughs> so like one of my favorite features about proof of stake is that if an attacker attacks Ethereum, it makes all of the stakers rich by, by default. Well, not by default, but, but yes. it's highly likely that the price of ether goes up because of somebody's buying up all this ether. Um, well, one question I, when I had about this, like th using this as a defensive mechanism in proof of stake, this is relying on the social layer, right? This is yes. in this moment, security has migrated away from the actual code and moved into the social layer, which it maybe it perhaps is one day, if this ever does happen, it would be coordinated via something like Twitter or Reddit. Can you talk about that dynamic? Uh, yeah, uh, so it, there's definitely a lot of kind of discomfort in relying on the social layer for consensus. Um, but you know, actually, I, uh, I wrote about this quite a bit in my original 2014 article, the one where I'd say I called like how I learned to love weak subjectivity. Uh, if you actually even just go in and like Google for that now, you can probably find it. Um, um, so basically, the arguments that I make is that relying on social consensus um, is actually reasonable occasionally. It's just that consensus is, uh, social consensus is not something that you want to uh, kind of keep on, keep leaning on forever, right? So the idea is basically that like, I mean, even Bitcoin relies on social consensus to some extent, right? Like even, you know, the, the UASF that was proposed in uh, uh, 2016 was ultimately a form of social consensus overriding mining. Uh, mm -hmm. So, Basically, um, you know, hard forks are done with uh, social consensus. Um, even the idea that if miners push a uh, blockchain that would increase the the supply to beyond 21 million, then people would reject that blockchain as like is ultimately secured by social consensus. The difference between um, a, uh, a a malicious protocol change and a bug fix is social consensus. So relying on social consensus on, on these like, kind of extreme matters where, um, and especially on matters where there's clearly one side which is an attack and one side which is just trying to push the chain forward is I think actually a reasonable thing to do. The thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to rely on uh, social consensus too often, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing to keep in mind is that if you even think about like how a, an attack on proof of work would be responded to, right? Like even like defenders of uh, ASIC based proof of work will say, oh, if our 51% attack happens, we can just break the ASIC and we can change the algorithm, right? Like if you press them on it, they will say that this is that this is a defense. Um, but that defense as well, it's also a so social consensus, like changing the proof of work algorithm is also a form of social mm -hmm. consensus overriding the, uh, uh, overriding the code. Uh, so it's and also strike. It's also striking that the price of Bitcoin, the like price in itself, is mm. one layer of social consensus too. It is indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And we've seen, we, we've seen this, uh, the idea of bricking ASICs. That's played out uh, a number of times, I believe, in the Monero community. So this is not hypothetical conversations. This is, this is strategy that blockchains have, blockchain ecosystems mm -hmm. have leveraged. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com want to live a bankless life, you need to get a Monolith DeFi Visa card. Monolith is a one-two punch of both an Ethereum smart contract wallet and an accompanying Visa card that lets you spend the money that you have in your Ethereum wallet everywhere where Visa is accepted. When you swipe your Monolith Visa card at the grocery store or at a restaurant, it actually makes a transaction on the Ethereum blockchain that spends some of the money you hold in your Monolith wallet. It's insanely cool and it's one of the best tools out there for living a bankless but still normal life. Monolith also offers on-ramp services for getting your fiat money into the world of DeFi. So it's trivial to top up your Monolith card if you ever need to, and your deposited money goes straight into your non-custodial wallet. So your money is never held by a centralized intermediary. Because Monolith is native Ethereum infrastructure, the money you hold in your Monolith wallet still has the power of DeFi behind it. Swapping assets on Uniswap or earning yield in DeFi is at your fingertips. Go to monolith.xyz and sign up to get your Monolith Visa card today. So let's move on to uh, one of my favorite subjects, which is how proof of stake is more decentralized than ASICs. Uh, some people would call this a bold claim. Vitalik, why can you make such a claim? Mm. Uh, so, and I think we do need to uh, break, like, break up proof of work into two categories, uh, GPUs and ASICs. Uh, so, you know, like, there is a very decent case that GPU-based uh, proof of work is quite decentralized, and I'm happy to admit this. Like, my, my qualm against the GPU mining is not about the decentralization, it's about the security, right? Now, the problem with ASICs, on the other hand, is that in order to make an ASIC, you need millions of dollars of capital, right? Now, you could say, oh... You know, you don't have to make your own ASIC, you could buy an ASIC, but the reality is that if you're buying an ASIC, the, the side that's making the most profit is not going to be you, it's going to be the ASIC manufacturer, right? People so, selling the shovels. Exactly. Uh, like, in the long run, it's like, the, the, the game is very much one that's kind of skewed to, uh, to benefit uh, whoever can sell the best shovel. And, um, you know, whoever can sell the best shovel has uh, a lot of, like, they can potentially even like sneak in code um, that could allow that ASIC to be bricked remotely. Like they could do all sorts of really evil things that are harder to do with if you're uh, running the thing on general purpose hardware. Uh, so, 
basically like ASIC based mining really does uh, you know, rely very heavily on this very small number of these uh, very uh, uh, wealthy and uh, kind of powerful manufacturers. And so like basically if proof of stake means the rich gets richer, well, guess what? ASIC mining also means the rich get richer, except the bar that you need to pass in order to get richer in, in the case of ASIC mining is something like $10 million. But in the case of proof of stake, it's $20,000 today and much less than $20,000 in the future when staking pools become possible. So one of the, I, I've been chewing around the ideas of, of staking pools and there's a bunch of different design parameters. Um, but I think the staking pool that uh, retains as much ethos of Ethereum as possible, which I think that there is a spectrum of how much does a, uh, a protocol or a company on Ethereum retain the original ethos of the, of the system. There, there's something to be said for that. Uh, uh, and that, that's kind of where I turn my attention to, to Rocket Pool, where Rocket Pool's trying to become a staking pool for people to mm -hmm. decentralize the a number, uh, the amount of uh, people that can participate in staking by being a pool, and then also decentralizing the nodes by making more uh, total nodes av available to be part of the Ethereum proof of stake consensus mechanism. When you think of Rocket Pool, is that what you think of? Uh, yeah, no, I think Rocket Pool is definitely one of the good examples of someone trying to do a good job. Um, the ETH2 protocol is really explicitly designed to make uh, a stake, decentralized staking with things like multi-party computation as easy as possible. Uh, so that's definitely the sort of direction that we're um, looking into. There's also um, this sub-argument that you made here, Vitalik, that proof-of-stake mm -hmm. is more censorship-resistant, and that's basically because it's not on the electric... Uh, electricity grid, right? For instance, like a, in the way that a mm -hmm. GPU mining or ASIC mining footprint might be. Is that the is that the main argument here? Yes, exactly. Like if you imagine, um, you know, you're you want you're living in say Venezuela and you want to participate in the Ethereum network, then if you're a proof of work miner, then you know realistically you're consuming huge amounts of, of electricity. You have to get huge amounts of hardware. If the government wants to find you, they can find you, right? Like it's <laughs> it's not hard to see someone cons like consuming that much electricity. Like these are techniques that they've already perfected for years uh, to figuring out like uh, finding people who are growing the wrong kind of plants in their backyard. Or uh, so um, you know this is. It, stuff. it does make you wonder how long it would take a motivated government body like the United States or some other government mm -hmm. body, maybe let's not name different governments here, to go seek out all of the major mining, Bitcoin mining, or even Ethereum mining facilities in the world and just confiscate them, mm -hmm. take them over by, for, by physical force. These are uh, now. <laughs> yes. It's just... Um, it, I think it's kind of a little bit of a game maybe that, that um, some in crypto play uh, as if we've already faced off against these nation states that are actually actually trying to censor us. The reality is they're, they're just not even trying yet. So <laughs> um, yeah, that is, that is an advantage that may come into play. But there are also some advantages that you talked about here, Vitalik, of proof of work. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the, the the ways proof of work actually is superior because there are some trade-offs can you talk about these yeah so and these are like what i think are the two best arguments in favor of proof of work like one is this critique that 
proof of stake feels more like a closed system. Like there isn't this uh, kind of new source of issuance that uh, kind of brings fresh economic blood in the into the ecosystem. And so, um, and uh, I, this, like, it feels like the system has this kind of naturally uh, kind of entropic pressure to just be more of the same people by default. Um, and this is definitely something that does uh, kind of concern me to some extent. And the best rebuttal that I have is that in proof of stake, the rewards in general are going to be fairly low, right? Like, I think if proof of stake rewards were say 10% of uh, like annually, then like I could see that very quickly lead to a few stakers very quickly to I'm um, having uh, a fair, a very large portion of uh, the entire supply and uh, mm -hmm. just dominating everything. But here we're talking about validator rewards equal to like up to 0.5 to 2%, probably closer to 0.5% of the total ETH supply. And the more validators are staking, the lower the interest rates get, right? And so the amount of of time needed for this factor to like cause a, a large amount of concentration is, a, is huge, right? It's potentially over a century. And on, on such timescales, like, does it really matter much, right? Like people want to spend money. They want to distribute their money among their children. They want mm -hmm. to give their money to charity. And so like, aren't the, like basically uh, if there are any natural economic pressures toward deconcentration at all, then mm -hmm. like they're going to have uh, an effect that's larger than 0.5% every year is basically the argument. Whereas mm -hmm. if that rate was instead of 0.5%, something like 4.5%, then I, mean, I think this argument would actually have a much stronger case. Uh, so and this is one of the reasons why I'm pushing for lower rewards. And the reason people make this argument is, of course, is as we stated earlier, um, ETH, staked ETH is, is almost like a, an everlasting ASIC. There's no right. depreciation. There's no capital depreciation, unlike and a real world physical ASIC. unit doesn't de deprecate. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And no, notably, the the people that see, that crypto has in, in, like accidentally and inadvertently made really wealthy are largely people that I, I'm guessing this is my gut take that weren't wealthy beforehand, right? And so, like, mm -hmm. what's the point of hanging on to you every single last denomination of ether if like you can't sell it and like have like kind of a nice, more comfortable lifestyle? Like, the people that have large supplies of ether are going to have to sell if they ever want that material impact to do something real in their lives. And so that's kind of what I think what you were alluding to Vitalik is that the rewards, the passive income rewards to ether accrue slower than people's uh, people find ways to sell their ether to buy a new house or new car or something. And so there's like this exactly. natural sort of like incentive to let go of your ether. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. But what about the second point, Vitalik? Mm. Uh, we talked about weak subjectivity earlier. Does, does anything bear repeating here? Now, weak subjectivity is this uh, extremely fascinating topic, and I think it's been really the center of the debate almost uh, ever since the beginning and up until this day. Like basically, uh, and weak subjectivity is this really subtle thing, right? Like the idea is that um, in proof of work, um, you know, you have this uh, property that you have your client and uh, you can just start it at any time and even if you've been offline for 10 years you can just start it up and you can stick to the value chain and you have all or, or the canonical chain and you have all of these uh, economic guarantees in proof of stake like you can kind of still do that but it depends on what guarantees you want right so like if you're if the guarantees that you care about are in are in an honest majority model um so you just assume that the majority of people are nice then you can still do that 
But if you want to have a hard economic guarantee, so you want to have a guarantee that says, um, you know, tricking you requires the attacker to like, burn a huge amount of money the way that proof of stake uh, kind of promises a strong economic guarantee is, then you lose this property to some extent, right? And the reason why you lose this property to some extent is basically because um, like, if an attacker just create, like, who has say 51% of the stake uh, creates a fake chain and they, and they convince you that this fake chain is the real chain, then like normally the, uh, the, the way that they would get punished for this is they would be slashed, right? Like if you create a fake chain that conflicts with the real chain that you already contributed to making, then you know some large portion of, your, of the validators of the stack, you can make proofs and uh, you can publish those proofs into both chains and you can burn the attacker's money. Uh, so, right, we've, this is just like standard, um, you know, proof of stake theory is like how slashing works. But the problem is, what if the attacker has already withdrawn their de um, the, e the deposits that they used to make the attack um, by the time that um, they actually need to do the attack, right? So what if someone has been offline for a year and you feed them a chain that looks like a valid chain from the perspective of um, their client that was um, off, um, offline on, or online for the last time a year ago, but back in present day reality, you've already taken out all your coins. And so whatever slashing happens can't actually hit you, right? So you could still trick them and you would not get slashed for it. And so if you want to be resistant against this attack, basically you just have to log on and kind of be online often enough um, that um, basically the time difference between uh, any two times during which you come online is less than uh, the time that it takes for like, something like one third of, the, of uh, the validator set to be replaced, right? Uh, which is, and, and that number depends on the size of the validator set. It's like somewhere between a couple of days and a couple of months, depending on how many people are participating. Uh, so like that, that, like that requirement, the requirement that in order to have a really uh, kind of economically guaranteed level of security on which chain you're getting, uh, you need to log on um, with your client at least once every few months. Like that is the, the this week's subjectivity requirement. And the reason why like, a lot of people feel uncomfortable about this is because it basically means that like, if you're if you're just joining the system for the first time, then uh, you know you for the first time that you log on, uh, you need to basically find some third party source that basically tells you like which chain is the canonical one that you should be following. Now, most of the time, this actually isn't a big deal because most of the time there aren't going to be 51% attackers trying to use their old keys to screw people over. And so there is really going to be like one chain that has enough signatures, right? But in the extreme case where there are attackers that can like buy up people's old keys, then uh, basically in order to disambiguate, you do need to find someone to uh, trust to give you that information. And... Like fans of proof of work say that, you know, oh my God, this is trust, this is fatal. What, what are you doing? You've completely destroyed the point of cryptocurrency. But my argument uh, is basically that like this level of trust is a level of trust that we already have. So like, for example, you already trust developers to tell you the most recent hard fork version. Um, you know, you already trust them to fix bugs. You already get software updates from them once every um, you know, half a year or so. And so why not just like leverage that existing level of trust and uh, I use it f for uh, proof of stake checkpointing as well. Um, so 
And so, that's basically the, you know. So with, with proof of work and Nakamoto consensus, we have the ability to actually legitimately and concretely verify the amount of work that is done on a particular chain. We don't have that with yes. proof of stake because we're not doing work. We are, and so there- right. We're verifying signatures that are signed right. by validators. Mm -hmm. And in order to recognize that those validators actually are real, you have to look at the state of the blockchain itself, like at mm -hmm. the time, uh, you know, a couple a month ago to a year ago, right? So, the like the security of a proof of stake chain is definitely more kind of, I mean, it's not like it's not circular. It's more like a spiral, right? It's like the security of the system today depends on the validity of the chain six months ago, and the and the security mm -hmm. of the chain six months ago depends on the validity of what happened twelve months ago. Mm -hmm. And so, like, if you skip one of those steps, then uh, like, mm -hmm. and if you're on offline for longer than that period of time, then you know, you do you do need some. Uh, way to kind of help you disambiguate and come back online. But if you're there more often than like basically staying in sync with the chain is more of this uh, like necessarily dynamic process. Right, right. So here's kind of, I guess, my takeaway to just sort of summarize uh, th this article and um, you guys jump in if you have some, some other things. If you are willing to get past this edge case weak subjectivity requirement and you made some compelling arguments why that that makes sense or it's less important than others think. And if you're willing to get past this issue that stake never depreciates, and so there is the, the capability for people in the system to continue uh, accruing wealth and you sort of mitigate against that, against that with lower rewards overall, then what you end up with is a chain that is much more economically secure uh, and also more efficient in that economic security. So you can do things like reduced issuance, right. reduce the cost to actually secure that network. Essentially, More you get security per dollar. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what proof of stake. Uh, that's what proof of stake provides, at least under Ethereum, right? Because there are other flavors of mm -hmm. proof of stake. But um, yes, would you add anything to that, Vitalik? No, no, I don't think in general, that's a great summary. Very cool. cool. And Vitalik, when a lot of the design design decisions behind proof of stake, and when you uh, when you you know verbalize your arguments and kind of just like thought out loud about these the weighing the pros and cons, uh, I, the way that you did that turns to our, our the next uh, article that we want to talk about, which is convexity versus con concavity. Um, mm. that, yeah, and and so like and man, we're just burning through your articles here, so you can put out a blog post uh, faster than anyone. Uh, and and I totally aligned with this article, and Ryan and I chewed on it together and had some conversations about like the implications of this. Before we get into those conversations, maybe you can kind of give us the synopsis on like convex versus concave dispositions. Uh, yeah, uh, so I think the core idea here is basically that like whenever there is a trade-off and there's like a choice between uh, kind of taking one path and taking another path, um, one of the uh, kind of more subtle differences between how people view that trade-off is basically like do they uh, uh is how they view the kind of extremes as opposed to what like the the options in the middle right so basically do they view it as the sort of uh, situation where like uh, um, a moderate op the moderate option is uh, kind of more likely to be better than the extreme options or do they view it as this scenario where you know like it is one or the other, and if you try to mix the two together, then it just completely doesn't uh, doesn't make any sense, and like you know it really is either this or that, uh, and so like those two graphs that are right there, like they yeah, do a good job of kind of showing what the perspective is, right? Like basically, right. 
like the graph on the left, like the, the concave worldview as a kind of like you have a yeah, a graph that's kind of sloped uh, downward. So it's kind of like a hill, right? Like so there's there's always some option in the middle that's best, but you know, whether it's uh, uh, kind of in the middle, but much closer to the left or in the middle, much closer to the right, that's something you can legitimately argue on. But then, uh, you know, as you go further to the extremes, um, then eventually on either side, it just uh, um, start, starts becoming worse versus the convex worldview, which looks less, the chart looks less like a hill and more like a valley where, uh, you know, he pretty much, uh, he wants to be either on one side or the other side in the middle is the worst place to be. Uh, so again, uh, like this starts off being very abstract, but I mean, if you go like once we uh, kind of go forward and go a few paragraphs down, like we can see uh, where uh, it starts becoming more concrete and where we can see some like specific examples of like what concave and convex means. Right. So here I just like give us uh, some examples of like what kinds of things someone with a concave disposition versus a convex disposition might say. So like one of them. Uh, uh, so uh, one uh, kind of concave statement, uh, going to the extremes has never been good for us. You can die from being too hot or too, or too cold. We need to find the balance between the two that's just right. Um, if you implement only a little bit of, of a philosophy, you can pick the parts that are the best and avoid the parts that are risky. But if you insist on going to the extremes, then once you've picked the, lo the low-hanging fruit, um, the next fruit that you have to pick, are gonna, you'll be forced to look harder and harder and you'll have smaller and smaller benefits and the risks might multiply and outweigh the whole thing. Um, the opposing philosophy, the, the philosophy that you favor less probably has some value too. And so you should generally try to combine the benefit, the, the best parts of both and definitely avoid things that the opposing philosophy continues to considers to be extremely terrible, um, you know, just in case they have more of a point than you realized. And then some examples of uh, convex statements. Uh, one is uh, we need to focus, otherwise we risk becoming a jack of all trades, master of none. Um, another example of a convex concept is the kind of the slippery slope concept. So if we take even a few steps down that road, it'll become a slippery slope and um, only pull us down even further until we end up in the abyss. There's only two stable positions either here or there, uh, and we want to stay here. Um, if you give an inch, it'll take a mile. Um, whether we're following this philosophy or that philosophy, we should just be following something and stick to it. Stick to it. Um, making a wishy-washy and a mix of everything doesn't make sense. Um, and so, so after this, like I get into what's probably the kind of motivating example of uh, this uh, idea for me, which is basically the Bitcoin versus uh, kind of Ethereum. Uh, you know, well, like before, before, before we get there, like I feel like I've met these two types of people, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I've met the the you know the binary thinker, the convex disposition thinker, where it's just like you're with me or against me kind of individual right and then i've definitely met the the concave disposition which is a bit more the pragmatist i could see it right. this way i could see it that way why don't we find the balance in between um and one of those definitely sounds like more of an ethereum not to stereotype and one of those sounds definitely more like a bitcoiner again not to stereotype part of me wonders how much people are just hardwired into these mm -hmm. modes like from like birth and genetics and yeah. like whatever happens to them in the in the in the early ages because mm -hmm. <laughs> i don't know like i've definitely met these types of people and i'm not sure how much they can kind of help it mm -hmm. 
And it's definitely yeah, noted so. in the crypto industry. Like when you come into this world, you find yourself quickly moving into a camp of sorts, like usually Bitcoiners or Ethereans. And like you kind of find yourself in to be one or the other. And there never really seems to be any of this like moment of flux where people are confused. They just kind of come to find themselves aligned with one of their particular communities. And it's, I, I think you've totally tapped onto a very real uh, parameter of personality that I think uh, would predispose someone for one community or the other. No, definitely. I think uh, again, it's a it's definitely a really interesting question. Like to to what extent like someone uh, uh, someone's disposition toward this like is you know either genetic or just like some cultural thing that's like so deep, like five thousand year old or whatever that it might as well be genetic. Um, like. I, I, if that's true, then, you know, that does mean that, you know, for mm -hmm. example, even if you personally like Ethereum more than Bitcoin, that there, you're, there's just no way that you're ever going to con uh, convince 100% of the world population to also right. be in that same camp. And so, like, you just have to acknowledge that uh, Bitcoin is going to continue to exist and there will always be some constituency that it appeals to. Mm -hmm. And if you're a Bitcoin person, then you'll, you'll have to kind of pretty much admit the opposite. Um, so... You know, if people really are in a difference in that way, then that does also just like say something for kind of maximalism versus pluralism in the world. And I guess just one of the nice things about cryptocurrency, as opposed to say traditional nation states, is that it's just so much easier to kind of sort yourself into the community that reflects mm -hmm. your values more. So what I want to ask you about your opinion as to the scalability of these social organizations that people find themselves in. So the, the way that I interpreted the convexity versus concavity graphs, like one is a U shape and one is a uh, N shape, right? And so if you put a ball on one of, on both of those, on the, on the concavity, it rolls off to the edges, right? It, it, fall, it falls off to the edge and then there's like a pit that the ball would fall into. Like a, a, and my mind goes to what Amin Soleimani calls a Moloch trap, right? A little trap where people like fall into where the convexity is a, it's a valley, right? You, you, a rocks that fall down to the bottom of the valley, the center of the valley. So my gut take is that a convex worldview or, or convexity is a more scalable group of coordinated people with the same opinions because they tend to converge upon pragmatism. They tend to converge upon the same ide uh, ideologies. Whereas the concavity seems to find itself in falling into a thousand different traps in different directions. Uh, would you- Well, actually, and I that? think just one quick way to fix your analogy, unfortunately, I think- uh, Please. It's, it's their concave worldview, right? That's the, the one that's more inclined to stay in the middle. Like the problem is that like in economics, the concept of utility is like positive utility is better, right? And so mm. like the graph ah, here okay. is like how good, whereas the gravity analogy is like, you know, you wants to fall down, right? And so down is like the, the, the direction of the tendency or like mm -hmm. preference if you want to like, uh, talk about fundamental physical forces that way. Uh, so like look at it upside down, I guess, if you want to analogize oh, it that way. Yes. But yes, and I think that, but like module of that, it's definitely a, a great way of uh, looking at the issue. Uh, because like, I think one of the challenges with the, the convex worldview is uh, basically that um, like if your worldview was that right now we're on the top of a mountain and we are going to fall on the left side of the mountain versus the right side of the mountain, then your first instinct is going to be, well, 
which side of the mountain uh, see, or, or that so seems less bad to fall down, and we're just going to fight like hell to, to make everyone fall down that side as fast as possible to avoid the greater evil of uh, people falling down, the, uh, uh, falling down the other side of the mountain. And then if you have people on both sides that are kind of both thinking that way, then you, know, you basically end up getting into a tug of war. Uh, so, and I think that like, that's definitely a very uh, kind of good consequence of, the, of uh, that intuition bump. And, uh, so for, 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 for those uh, listening in who maybe um, don't, haven't seen that yet, do we have some examples from the, the Bitcoin community for, or from the Ethereum community that kind of maybe, maybe prove this out? I consider you almost in this article, like it's a little bit philosophy, but it's a little bit anthropology as well, right? Where you're like studying the culture of, of Bitcoin mm -hmm. and the decisions that the culture has made and contrasting that to the, um, the decisions and the culture that, that Ethereum has. But what are some good examples of this? Like for, was the block size debate a good example of this cultural temperament? Um, absolutely. Uh, so. Basically, uh, and if you remember in the, the block size debate, like basically the, the block size at the beginning was one megabyte, and then there were all of these arguments about, you know, do we make blocks unlimited? Do we make them 20 megabytes? Do we make them eight megabytes? Do we do some two, four, eight sort of thing? And eventually, the side that ended up winning is very close to the extreme small block side. It basically says, I mean, a blocks are one megabyte and then there's this one uh, kind of soft fork called SegWit, which de facto increases the block size to 2.3 megabytes. And then there's basically you know, no increase uh, kind of going from there, right? And if uh, you remember during the block size debate in the big block camp, there were a lot of people who are, were in favor of moderate increases. So people who were in favor of, you know, eight but not 20 or four but not eight. Um, and there were people who were in favor of just not having a block size limit at all because they felt that, um, you know, the system just needs to be able to support as much capacity as it needs or like the market should be deciding block size. And like, there's a bit of a tangent about how that particular claim is crazy because the mechanism isn't, isn't really a market. But and basically, like, you did have like these people who wanted very big. And I remember... Like one of the arguments that, that the very big block people would make is basically that, well, you know, if you oppose the, like, uh, what the small block people are trying to do, then you should follow that thinking to the quote logical conclusion. And you should realize that ultimately the correct approach is no block size limit at all. Right. <laughs> and I remember being fascinated by that because like, okay, so basically if you're saying that, um, you know, moving from um, like point X to point X plus one, uh, like if you support moving from X to X plus one, then you should also support moving from X, X plus 10 to X plus 11. Like, no, I don't believe that at all. Like, <laughs> well, like what kind of worldview is this? That, that's you know, a convex like, worldview. It's a exactly. very convex yes. worldview. <laughs> it is indeed. Um, and so that was a uh, convex people on the big block side. Right. And then convex people on the small block side, like they're like, I argued against them on, uh, in a lot of places, like Reddit, Twitter, everywhere all the time. Right. Like, a lot of the smaller blockers would say things like, like, I would say, oh no, you know, see, we need to compromise and we need to make sure that it's possible to read the, the uh, to read the blockchain and it's also possible to write to the blockchain, meaning to send the transaction transactions to the blockchain um, at affordable rates. And we need to find some way to compromise between those two. And they're like, no, 
You know, either the system is decentralized or it isn't. And if it's 95% decentralized, then really that just means it's on a track toward not being decentralized at all. And either you can verify the thing or you can't. And mm -hmm. everyone should be verifying. Everyone should be totally verifying it. And anything that involves any degree of trust just is trust. And, um, you know, we should all just dismiss any, any level of trust as being basically the same as just using PayPal. Uh, and I remember also finding this, this worldview like very unreasonable and dogmatic as well. I'd actually, I, yeah, on that specific issue, I wrote another Vitalik.ca article recently. If you remember the one um, that's called On Trust Models, uh, this was from August, right? Like this is the one where I talk about the differences between, yeah, if you have a philosophy section, I think it's there. Uh, third one, there it is. So 2020, August 20. Um, Basically, you know, there's N of N trust models, there's N over two of N trust models, there's one of N trust, there's zero of N trust, scroll down a bit and you see the graph, right? There it is. Uh, so basically, the, the, the thing that I argued is that one of N trust is actually much, much closer to zero of N trust than it is to N out of two of N trust, right? And like on the graph, like it really does seem like it, it is much, uh, like much closer, but a person who has a convex perspective on trust would say, you know, no, no, no. Either you're at zero of N or you're trust. And if you're trust, then you're on team PayPal. And mm -hmm. well, okay, PayPal is going to support Ethereum now. So, you know, we can't skip uh, 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 <laughs> PayPal. I don't know who are we supposed to hate. Um, <laughs> well, but what's interesting about it is because this convex um, bent at, at, at first blush, it looks um, very strong because the community absolutely stands for things there shall be only 21 million thou shalt not print more bitcoin ever mm -hmm. but then when you like when you kind of look at it a little bit more and maybe this is just the the concave in me kind of speaking but you also see this brittleness like i wonder quite frankly what the convex bitcoiner community is going to do if it finds out that it needs more security mm -hmm. than 21 million bitcoin at some point as these happenings continue into the future. Does it, does, does that convex uh, like mode just tear at the center and become brittle? Yeah. Does the community completely fracture apart because it can't make any compromise on anything at all? It has to stick with sort of this, this maximalist uh, type of um, ideology and philosophy. So it, it's weird because it appears that there's a strength to mm -hmm. this like philosophy, but there's also a brittleness to it. And I'm not sure how to, I'm not sure how to see that. No, and I definitely think that's a very good way of describing the trade-off. Like uh, the, the, this concept of shelling fences and um, uh, just setting hard boundaries and saying, we're just never ever going beyond them. Uh, that's uh, like, that's definitely a powerful thing. It's a, uh, mm -hmm. it's definitely can be a scalable form of social coordination. It can be very emotionally appealing as well. But yes, you know, it is brittle. And as soon as you enter into a kind of territory that you were not expecting, it can easily end up backfiring on you. Uh, so like in the case of Bitcoin, right? Like if they discover that transaction fees are not enough, they basically have three choices. Like one of them is uh, print more than 21 million. The second is a switch to proof of stake. And so the third is just accept that the blockchain will get 51% attack from time to time. And, uh, you know, like, you'll just have, uh, like, people, uh, like, sometimes days worth of transactions being reverted. Mm -hmm. And 
it's surprised to be to an insane extreme extent just how many people are willing to accept the third option. Right. Right. Like, I don't know. Have you seen any of this? <laughs> yes. Like, even on Twitter, yeah, there I've are seen people a ton saying of it. That, like, yep. oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. That, like, fine. Like, Transactions Here, being ever being final was never one of the intended properties of Bitcoin. Pierre, Pierre Richard makes this exact argument right. that it's no big deal, right? Like we wait days for transactions to finalize. Vitalik, um, would right. you characterize this as a Moloch trap? Good question. Um, is this a uh, is this a Moloch trap? I guess. Well, a Moloch trap would be a situation where like everyone or most people want the situation to go in a certain direction, but just because they can't get along and ends up going in, in the opposite direction. I guess in that Bitcoin case, like, would it be a Moloch trap? Like, uh, one possibility would be that like people actually literally genuinely prefer the blockchain breaking once every few weeks <laughs> to uh, violating either one of the core tenets. But I think what would happen in reality is that there's a small minority that genuinely feels that way, but the average Bitcoiner, I think, is more pragmatic and they really would rather switch to uh, proof of stake or add a small amount of issuance um, than accept that state of affairs. Uh, and so like, I could I could definitely see just like coordination failures between those two leading mm -hmm. to like a split or, lead, or um, right. just taking a really long a really long time to resolve the situation. And I definitely categorize that as being more luck. Well, it, a split is not necessarily Moloch, but... Right. So, v Vitalik, it, it was very obvious to me when you were writing this that uh, it was coming from the design philosophy of blockchains, um, yes. the, 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 the design philosophy of crypto economic networks. But um, on the Bankless program, Ryan and I talk about how these crypto economic networks are very comparable to like a neo-nation, a new, a new generation of a nation, right? And so when we're talking about design philosophy of a blockchain network, we're also kind of talking about the design philosophy of a new type of social organization, a new kind of nation. And so the, when Ryan and I resonated with the concave view, it seemed to be out of an endeavor. And, it, and also when we uh, kind of come to the, came to the conclusion that Ethereum seems to be resonating with the concave view, that Ethereum is trying to offer this uh, credibly neutral layer and what is credible neutrality other than being in the middle, being a pragmatist about uh, the, the middle of a curve? And so when uh, a good nation state to me allows people to go about their day and achieve their personal goals without having the, any, any sort of convexity of the design dispositions of a nation state or a crypto economic network getting in the way of these individual's goals, right? Like we want to empower the individual, but in, it's important to have a, a, an organization where the whims of one individual doesn't impact the whims of another individual in achieving their daily goals. And so that's where the neutrality of a nation state or the neutrality of a crypto economic network comes into play in order to really empower the individual without enabling them to get in the way of, of empowering others. Is it, was this kind of what you were thinking about when you, when you um, wrote about this? No, and I think this conv concave versus uh, convex thing definitely has uh, implications going far beyond uh, uh, out of crypto uh, uh, politics. And I think like nation state issues are definitely one place where that this uh, becomes uh, um, also a really uh, 
a really important concern. I mean, down the road line, I even give examples around uh, like, um, nation state issues like dealing with the coronavirus and taxation and how convexity and concavity and, and war, like um, how they end up uh, uh, kind of affecting those. Uh, I mean, one philosophical thing that you could argue is that like even the concept of freedom is to some extent a fundamentally concave concept, right? Because uh, like one way to think about freedom is that like if side A is my way of life is better and everyone should uh, should live according to my way of life and side B as your way of life is better and everyone should live according to your way of life then you know freedom basically says well people who like my way of life live according to my way of life and people who like your way of life live, live according to your way of life and that uh, like that is in some way a compromise between those two options right uh, so and you, know, you can definitely look at uh, kind of concavity in that way, but then, I mean, as we see, there's a lot of uh, kind of different layering here. You can look at concavity in a lot of different ways. Uh, I mean, you can even look at concavity versus convexity as something um, affecting your personal decisions. Uh, so, like a, a bit further above, uh, in the case of uh, Bitcoiners, right? I, I mean, the the carnivory thing was uh, one great example of uh, <laughs> this. Is like proof that this actually does get into like like this is convexity, right? Like, you're, uh, <laughs> um, you know, like a concave person would say, oh, you know, you should eat a balanced diet and you should make sure to have like some, uh, have some salad, have uh, some good like meat or fish or whatever you like, have some, uh, um, have some grains. But a uh, convex person would say, no, 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 there's one thing that's healthiest and you should just, you should figure that out using research and you should just <laughs> yes. eat it, right? So carnivores are convex, vegans are also convex. Um, but uh, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, normal people end up being being more concave. And I mean, on the diet normal issue, people. I find myself more concave too. What a coincidence! Uh, it's it's funny because um, I think this this is the type of article that you have to kind of like chew on, and um, you can apply to so many areas of life. But I I will tell you that one gift it gave me is actually understanding crypto Twitter and understanding like. Bitcoiner culture and Ethereum culture because for so long, Vitalik, like I just didn't understand it, to be honest. Like I didn't understand the perspective where you'd kind of explain something or you talk about something and there'd be still such a chasm, such a delta. And it's because of these totally different worldviews. Like once you see it, it kind of explains everything. I'm curious where you where you got this mental model of the world. Um, I mean, have you seen anything like this elsewhere? Were you influenced by anything when you were when you were thinking about concave versus convex? I haven't seen anything quite that illustrates it in this way. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if like this exact presentation like existed in some literature before. Um, like again, the like concavity and convexity are definitely like things that you would understand in mathematics and like con like. Concavity is definitely a thing in economics, like for example, and like I talk about taxes below, and that's like one of those uh, examples there. Um, but like, I mean, I think it just like took years of brushing up against this kind of like A versus B logic, and eventually yeah. just like figuring out like you know like yes, this is where the divide is. So what are the implications here? Does does this mean that? Um at some level that Ethereans should try less hard to uh, explain their positions to people who are very convex in thinking because there's just going to be a, a delta there that can't be passed. Uh, and maybe we should focus more on 
finding the other concave people in the world? Is that one implication? What, what are your thoughts on the implications here? It could be. Um, I, I think there's definitely yeah, people um, who I think are just attracted to the, uh, the, the convex perspectives in a way that uh, would be very hard to kind of make, uh, get them to find the uh, Ethereum camp appealing and um, you know, maybe that's okay. And uh, again, that's just like one property of like of, of, uh, of opposition to uh, you know like Bitcoin maximalism. But you know, I guess there can be these uh, multiple ecosystems, and they can all kind of prosper within their communities. Um, and, and I think ultimately, uh, um, you know, for crypto to become mainstream, like yes, it do, it does need to just to kind of reach out to the wider world and kind of explain its perspective to the wider world more. I do think that we should continue uh, kind of making the case for Ethereum. And um, I think uh, one of the ways in which uh, I, I think the philosophy here can help is that I think Ethereum sometimes gets framed as not having values because it's not willing to just dogmatically take a direction and stick to it. Um, I but I think like, I don't think that like that's not necessarily true, right? Because like, I think Ethereum has values, it has things that it's that it's pushing toward. But uh, concavity is a good mental model to expo explain how like it's possible to believe in something, but at the same time be moderate about it, and it's and it's and it's possible to like, actually have this as a, a as something you believe and not just like something you are because you because you just don't know what you are. Um, so. Say for say we fast forward into 20, 30 years into the future and Ethereum is maximally successful to the degree that we all hope that one day it becomes. Do you attribute that success to a, con, a, a concave mindset on behalf of Ethereum? I definitely think the con, uh, concave mindset is a very good one to uh, for at least what Ethereum's goals are, which I think involve a kind of broad adoption and uh, bringing uh, decentralization and permissionlessness to like basically large groups of, uh, of regular people. Uh, and uh, on the Bitcoin side, it's interesting, right? Because I think Bitcoin is kind of of two minds in terms of what its goal is. Like one of its minds is basically replacing gold and like becoming the new digital gold. Um, whereas the other one is like, let's be, let's focus specifically on censorship resistant wealth transfer for people in like authoritarian regimes or uh, in general people, in every regime is, is authoritarian to some non-zero extent. Um, so when like people who brush up against that side of things and like, Having a convex approach, like it, it, it can definitely buy you a kind of success in that second side of things because you know there really are people who just need fairly uh, fairly extreme trade-offs. Though, you know, at the same time, I do think that Ethereum is also fairly capable of satisfying those trade-offs. Except, Ethereum's approach is different, and it relies more, I think, on just creating this uh, uh, thing that provides broad value for and of much, uh, larger groups of people, even if like in some cases, the average value per person could, um, could end up being a bit lower than, um, you know, literally saving your life, uh, rescuing your life savings. And like Ethereum can still literally rescue your life savings in some context, but like the median use case is, uh, kind of, uh, I guess, a little bit more closer to, to um, average people's experiences. So, you know, 
there's an element too. I, I wonder, I'm in the Bitcoin culture community, if um, that, that second pool that you mentioned, that, that uh, convex pool who has formerly been uh, ardent supporters of um, you know, censorship resistance, if, if that's not being, being driven out a little bit too, because it just seems like this narrative of, and this, this need for like price go up, um, ha- yeah, has has driven out a lot of the original values, and maybe I'm being a little harsh on Bitcoin or culture, but it just seems this embrace of kind of crypto banks, if you will, and mm-hmm. um, like custody and institute, like that wasn't part of the the original convex plan for for Bitcoin or so. It, it, there's almost this hollowing out effect where you get this mm-hmm. convex. Um, culture mm. around things like 21 million right. and number go up. Number and go up, when, everything else. When our friend Nick, Nick Carter talked uh, on Bloomberg about uh, the happening being priced in, and he was absolutely crucified because apparently that's not canon with <laughs> you know, some convex members of the Bitcoiner community. Um, like It's those types of things that have become more important than elements of censorship resistance. So there's almost like this hollowing out type of effect of the values that at least I thought used to matter in, in Bitcoin or culture. I don't know if you guys observe that, but it's something that has been surprising to me. These are not necessarily the extremists, die for the cause, martyrs that maybe they once were. I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe that's harsh. Yeah, no, and I like the ch- one of the kind of big fault lines I'm seeing is basically that. So the, stor- the, the story that small blocker values were originally sold under, right, is that you don't need that much security on the base chain because the Lightning Network can basically make up for it, right? And they put right. a lot of their kind of heart and soul into the Lightning Network. But what's been happening over the last couple of years is that the Lightning Network has only received fairly limited adoption. And instead, we're seeing um, you know, Liquid start taking off. And Liquid is, of course, a permissioned consortium chain. So basically, the same sort of thing that they denounced as evil back in 2014. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, 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 people are just like they're cheering on um, you know, ETFs and like, bank, uh, this kind of institutional adopt, uh, like, adoption that doesn't actually translate to any kind of decentralization. and. Like some of those things, like some level of those things is definitely uh, kind of natural and good and uh, like good for adoption. But it does seem like the problem for me is when it gets to the point where it's so extreme that like these people are literally like start excusing the like the the growing lack of accessibility of fully self-sovereign options, right? Like basically like when they start saying, oh, it's totally fine if like centralized intermediaries become used for most things, that's when it really starts uh, kind of turning me off. Uh, so it feels like it's uh, kind of just letting the, like, it feels like it's letting the winds of uh, kind of technical, uh, kind of historical default push it in a direction and then retroactively kind of retconning the narrative to say that it always was that direction all along. Right. Um, and like, there's definitely a big part of that that's uh, kind of difficult for me to relate to. Like, you know, if they had, uh, like, I think someone who is honest about maximizing censorship resistance would realize that 
intermediary minimization is a pragmatic and needed part of censorship resistance. And if you want to minimize intermediaries, you need to have the base chain be able to provide more things, potentially even add some level of risk to that making uh, that making the base chain a bit heavier. Um, but like if you're just care if you just care about permissionlessness of the base chain, but you don't care as much about the ability to do trustless and permissionless things on top, then like that definitely gets to the point where it starts to losing me. Um, well, yeah, Vitalik, I, I, I really appreciated your your post because it, it allows me to put so many of your other posts into perspective, right? Like I understand your proof of stake post better because I read your your concavity versus convexity post. So thank you for for producing this work, and also thank you for coming on the the Bankless uh, Bankless show to share some of that work in in a new format to a to a new audience. So and and also congratulations on the ETH two deposit contract genesis as well. Thank you very much. It was good to be here. Thanks, Vitalik. See you later. Thank you.